Are any of you done shopping yet? Oh, that's so depressing. That's great. Uh, I normally go out, gentlemen, on the uh, 23rd. If you want to make a trip with me, uh, we'll appreciate that. So I'm not kidding about that. It, this time of year, though, the whole world is caught up in it. And it's funny. Of course, here in La La Land in Los Angeles, it's amazing to me when people talk about the spirit of the season or the reason for the season, it has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. I love uh, New Yorker cartoons. One of my favorite is there's two women looking at a crash in the mall in front of a store, a manger scene, and the caption underneath it says, look, the church is even trying to horn in on Christmas. You know, that people don't even realize what's going on. Charles Dickens probably summarized this season the best. Not in a Christmas carol, but in a tale of two cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And his book is not just a commentary on the difference between London and France during the revolution, but on the different responses of people to different events in history. You know, this is one of the times where total strangers will be so kind to each other and help each other, and it's also one of the times of the greatest anger and depression and misery of any time in the year. And it brings out in us, you can both be the best of you or the worst of you. One of our first churches, this had to be like 28 years ago, a woman was laughing, she told me a story, I always remember it. She went to the store shopping at the mall and she got back to her car with all the presents to get her keys and she thought, oh my goodness, I left my purse. So she went running back to the store and there standing in front of the store was a little boy holding her purse. And she said, did you find that? He said, yes. She said, did you keep it for me? He said, yes. She said, what a good little boy. Let's see if we got something. And she opened her purse and she remembered all she had was a $20 bill, but now there was a 10 and 10 ones. <laughs> and she said, did you make change? He says, yes. Last time I was a good little boy, she didn't have change to reward me. And so that <laughs> brings out the best in all of us as well as the worst. We've been looking at this question of Christmas in the city and been looking at the cities that God used in the birth of Christ. First one we saw was Nineveh. Why the Assyrian capital? Because that was in that context that Isaiah gave the prophecy, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. And we found out that God is there before we ever get to a situation, even in Assyria in the eighth century. God is there while we're there, and God will be there long after we're gone. Last week we saw the next city, Nazareth. And Nazareth, the home of Jesus, where he will spend 30 of his 33 years. And we found out that that city teaches us that God delights in using the common, small, unknown people and unknown places. God loves to do that. But this morning we come to the marquee city of Christmas, Christ Mass, Bethlehem, the house of bread. It is in Bethlehem that will be the invasion of God into this world, the strategic landing zone for God in flesh coming to here. And Bethlehem, though we have it so much this time of year, we forget what Bethlehem was like. So to help us, once again, our shepherds have a little another travelogue on our cities. Watch this. 
Dateline Bethlehem. Because of the census ordered by Rome, all inhabitants of Israel are ordered to return to the cities of their birth to be counted for tax purposes. This directly affects a one Joseph of Nazareth and his betrothed, the Virgin Mary. Which is just how we refer to her. It's not like her friends are going, Hey, Virgin Mary, how you doing? Oh, hey, Virgin Sarah, how's by you? I'm good, you hear about Elaine? You mean Virgin Elaine? Not now. Mm -mm -mm. Really? That's where you're going with our news report? You know, you're not going to talk about the lack of lodging or Rome's need for a census? Well, I figured you'd do the hard news and I'll do more human interest. The distance Mary and Joseph will have to travel from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem is approximately 80 miles. Now, barring any delays, this trip will take easily two to three weeks. According to eyewitnesses, the first words Mary said when she got off the donkey was, Ow! Does anybody have a pillow? Can you spell epidural? But why would the Lord choose this sleepy hamlet as the launching point for his son's ministry in the first place? Oh, oh, I know, I know. Pick me, pick me, pick me. I know, I know this one. could be because of its rich history. Known in the Hebrew scriptures as the city of David, it is also the final resting place of Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob. Which, again, is just how we refer to her. It's not like her friends are going, hey, Rachel, favorite wife of Jacob. How is Leah, his least favorite wife? Still going with that human interest stuff, aren't you? Yeah. But in fashion news, what are all the pregnant virgins wearing this year? This season, blue is the new white. Or, Yahweh could have chosen this obscure location for a more ironic reason. Namely, that Herod, the earthly Roman power assigned to govern all of Israel, would be seated on his throne, in his castle, while the king of the universe is born under his very nose. But ultimately, the reason God chose this particular location for the birth of his son may well have been because of the livelihood of this town, namely raising sheep. Bethlehem is known throughout the region as the main provider of cute little colored little lambs. Which are the main resource for sacrificial Jewish ceremonies at their temple. Now, some people refer to these little animals as pets, but others of us refer to them as friends. Friends who will listen when other shepherds out in the field won't and providing his own sacrificial lamb here in Bethlehem was just too perfect for the Lord to ignore. And in... No, what, what do you mean sacrifice? Do you mean like in, in baseball? No, like in... <coughs> Yui! Lamb chop! Fluffy! Reporting for Dateline Bethlehem, I'm Samuel the Shepherd. Just me, or in the know. It really was uh, that sense of the irony of God and the foreshadowing. God used Bethlehem. He was texting if anybody would read what he was saying through the pages of history because of two reasons. Bethlehem was known because of the water of Bethlehem that David would long for to be able to quench his thirst and Bethlehem the house of bread that as Christ is born in a manger, a feeding trough, that he becomes the bread of life for all of us. And God in his brilliance and his omniscience and his omnipotence ahead of time when the creator becomes a part of his creation finds this place in the birth of this child. And you and I, when we find in our own life the things that we try to quench our thirst with or fill our bellies, 
The world's ways are just so inadequate compared to the goodness of God. Well, Bethlehem had a long history. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn with me over to 1 Chronicles 11. It's on page 323 in your pew Bible. And the well of Bethlehem was known to the people as being a thirst quencher. David, of course, Chronicles is written, First and Second Kings is written before the exile. This is after the exile, about 300 years. And they're talking about this event that takes place. David and his mighty men, the men that were loyal to him. And in the 11th chapter, in verse 15, it says, Three of the 30 chiefs went down to the rock to David, to the cave of Adullam, while the army of the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Now, what is going on is that David is once again in his lifelong battle with this neighboring nation the Philistines have invaded. They're holding Bethlehem, his, his home. David is in a garrison with the troops somewhere else, and he's longing for something from his home. Look what he says next. Verse 17, David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And then the three broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, my God forbid that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. The three warriors did these things. Now, what, David is standing there, and he's thinking of his hometown that's occupied, and he goes, oh, the water in Bethlehem, if I could have a drink of that. His three bodyguards hear this, just three of them, and they so are loyal to David, the Hebrew word chesed, faithful lovingness, that they break their way through. The guards are, the Philistines don't say, help yourself, knock yourself out, get a drink. They have to fight their way in and fight their way out with this bag of water. And they were no doubt probably wounded, but they survived. And they offered a king, they go, water from your home. And David goes, would I drink this water? These men almost died because they were so loyal to me. And so he pours it out before the Lord. Has said, if you were trying to teach any of your children growing up, you would talk to your children about the mighty men and the Bethlehem event. They would know this. When Alexander the Great was conquering with his army, was so loyal to Alexander that when he came to Sardis, one of the cities of the book of Revelation in present day Turkey, it's on this huge mountainous limestone fortification. You can't get through it. And he came riding up to the very front of the city, a drop of about two or 300 yards down below. And he looks up at them and he says, I want you to surrender to me. And they look down at him. They know they've got water. They know they got food. And here's Alexander and his men. And they said, why would we surrender to you? Alexander points to his first five men. They salute him and they leap over the cliff to their death. And then he looks up and he says, I want you to surrender, and they surrendered. You cannot fight an army that is so loyal to the king that when he says, I want you to kill yourself, that they gladly do it. You cannot fight somebody that loyal. That is chesed. And that when you think of Bethlehem is a story about this quenching of thirst. 
Now all of us, you know, you develop taste. Do you, you realize, have you ever had real pure water from the top of a mountain? You can do that if you'd like to get Jardian out, but if you've ever had that, you know that it is so pure, it doesn't quench your thirst. This quenches your thirst more because you know that minerals are put into it. All of the, I mean, all the water that you buy and stuff, they are, have to put water to make the taste better for you. And we develop taste to things. I've told you before, do you remember the first time you had a sip of coffee? Did you not think it was gasoline? And now you know it's a gift of God. How, how do you develop, you develop that kind of a taste. And you and I, we develop the taste for the sour, salty, brackish water of this world. We develop a taste for living for me, for money, for pleasure, for vengeance, for trying to promote ourselves over everybody else. And you get a taste for that stuff. But once you've tasted of the living water, the Holy Spirit himself, that stuff is sour compared to the quenching of that. Any of you that have had to do tough decisions with end of life, friends and relatives, and if you have not, you will because of medical science that we have today. And one of the toughest decisions is whether to not unhook them from respirators per se, but whether stopping feeding tubes. And do you know one of the things that happens in the last stages of life is when you are so dehydrating, you lose your sense of thirst. You're not thirsty anymore. And when, and the Bedouins will tell you this, when you are in the desert and you are no longer thirsty, you are dying. That literally your system is so shut down, it doesn't thirst anymore. You and I live in a city, not only are people out there thirsty for the soured water of this world, some of them aren't even thirsty anymore. They're so far gone. And you and I are called when they interact with us and see our lives and they can feel our love to develop that thirst again, to say, I want a drink of that, what is that? And Mary understands this. And as you were reading in the Magnificat when she says the, the faithfulness of God and how God has elevated the lowly and the rich and the powerful he has sent away. I mean, you see this theme time and time again. You can always be too big for God. God can't use you anymore. You're so important and you're so talented, God can't use you. You can never be too small for God. God loves taking unknown women and men and places and doing his work because those people are open to him. God loves the poor not because they're poor, but because they're so desperate they're open for God to do it. It's not the problem with wealth, with having talent or money, it's that we so hold on to those things, we'll never let go of them and we take them to our death. And so we find out here that David has this longing and this sense for this water and so they fight through to that. And Bethlehem will become a city that is known not only just for that, but also for the sense of bread of life. Turn with me over and take another look. Turn back to the left to Genesis, the 35th chapter. It's on page 28 in your pew Bible. You know, one of the more difficult ministries is the ministry of receiving, not giving. It's easier for you and me to give and to help people sometimes than it is to have the humility to receive. Jesus alone, when he is on the cross, is strong enough to say, I thirst, from the people that are killing him, from his executioners, and they give him a sip of soured vinegar wine to slake his thirst. 
It is easier sometimes for me to give away things and help people than for me to say, I need some help here. Because for us to say, you know, I'm still hooked on the booze or the drugs, or I got this sexual addiction, or my mouth, I just say the meanest things, or I'm just overcome with fear, or I'm just so hooked on money, I just can't let go of it. And to say, help me, that is a much larger person. And Bethlehem teaches us the ministry of receiving. It also teaches us the ministry of what is sorrow and exaltation. Rachel, remember, was beloved of Jacob, as our shepherd showed us. Remember, he loved Rachel, and he worked for her seven years, and then Leah gets slipped in that night, so he has to work 14 years, and he loves them. Leah is, she's one fertile mama. She's pumping out the kids all the time, but Rachel, not very often, but she does have some. And this last one, this last childbirth of Benjamin, the beloved, will kill her. If you notice here in verse uh, 20, he is moving along and he is looking at this place from verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, well, that's the place where Bethlehem will be. Rachel was in childbirth and she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, do not be afraid for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, that means son of sorrow. But her father said to him, not to say Ben-Oni, but Ben-Jamin, son of my right hand, or exalted. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. If you get on a plane today down here at LAX and take El Al and fly over to Ben-Gurion and you drive to Bethlehem, you will go by a place that is Rachel's tomb. Rachel's tomb was there when Genesis was written. Rachel is there and she is in birth and as she is dying because the delivery is going so bad, she says, call him Benoni, son of sorrow. The sorrow, not just that she's dying, but the sorrow for her son because Rachel won't be there to raise him. And the midwife says, all right, but Jacob is there and Jacob says, no, not Ben-Oni, but Ben-Jamin, son of my right hand, that means the exalted one. Because Jacob says, I will exalt this. It's probably why Jacob so loves Benjamin because remember, when Joseph will capture the brothers and play with them, he holds Benjamin back, because Benjamin is the beloved one. This is the place, Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin, from which David will be born. It is from the tribe of Benjamin at Bethlehem, where the Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, one of the tribes that survived going into Exodus and Babylon. It is at Bethlehem that the Messiah is born, of course the son of David. And it is this ability to be able to realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Wow, what we eat. Any of you that have been overseas in some of the two-thirds world where some of the utter poverty is, and you see these little children with their extended bloated stomachs, a lot of that's because when you're in the process of starvation, you get water, you develop it in the stomach cavity. But some of it is because these kids are out there and they're so hungry, they're just eating sticks and twigs and leaves. 
and their stomachs are so bloated because we don't have the ability to break that down and take any nutrition out. So reading this last week, some of the new research for energy and the biochemists are studying termites. Why termites? Because termites biochemically have an enzyme that actually creates more energy than it takes to digest wood. And they're just blown away that this little tiny insect has this chemical process that can do that. You and I, when we dine on the word of God, that we can have the spiritual enzyme to eat the garbage of the world and tease the good out and leave the bad behind. For the mature Christian. Remember Jesus said you will handle serpents and drink poison and it not harm you? Some of you can be in the heart of the studios. You can be in the most corrupt, if you will, political situations and in corporate America where they will sell you for the almighty dollar or in some of these schools where they mock you for your faith and you can dine with those people if you have the Lord in you and be able to bring the good out from the bad. It takes a very mature Christian to be able to do that. But you see this reference what God is doing at the sense of Bethlehem. And it's this following that God wants to give to the world that a lot of people miss. You know, as Christians, we try to decide how can we interact. Have you ever noticed as a Christian you can't get back at people, so you just pray for them in bad ways? Do you do that? <laughs> I like the uh, Amish farmer who was going along on the horse and he bought a new horse and it wouldn't move and it wouldn't move and it wouldn't move and it wouldn't move and he got out of his buggy and went around and he looked the horse in the eye and he said, Brother horse, thou knowest that I am Amish and I cannot strike thee. But know this, if you don't move, I will sell thee to a Presbyterian who will beat thee. <laughs> and so that question is, how can we get the things that we want and yet still do it in a godly way? I uh, wasn't gonna share this, but I did at nine o'clock, so I guess I have to, uh, that... Uh, Carol and I were coming back uh, from Denver uh, to see uh, my mom and stepfather, and a guy in front of us walking, you know, those moving escalators, you know, going to your gate, and there was behind him a $5, a Canadian $5 bill. And so obviously he had dropped it, so I went and I picked it up, and uh, I was going to get a hold of him, and I saw him going to the restroom, and so I went to the restroom, and he was standing there, so I let him finish his call, and... Uh, <laughs> Well, I think I had to get on the gate, so I just, and I said, here, and I offered him the $5. And he just looked at me and said, that's not mine. And I went, oh, well, I'm from L.A., and he said, I'm sure you are. I don't know what that means, but. Have you ever, like, trying to give people things? The awkward moment. I don't know why I shared that, but it, but God's trying to just give to us these things and we're going, not mine. God tries to give to us his plan and an invasion of this world and we're all going, that's not mine. And God says, yes it is. This birth is no coincidence that Mary and Joseph should be at Bethlehem. This is about as coincidental as a NASA space shot. God has arranged this from the details. You in your life right now is no coincidence. Mark my words. God is placing us where he wants us to be. If we're receptive, the townspeople, Jesus is born there and they miss it. Even the innkeeper misses it. 
And how many people miss out on so many incredible things that God wants to do because life got a little tough and we got a little hurt and we're ticked at life. Victor Goltzel, 1962, printed a book. It's just been re-released. It's a fascinating read. It's called Cradles of Eminence. And in 1962, and they've updated it, he studied the 400 most famous people of all time. And he wanted to find what is the commonality for the great women and men of history. Was it education? Was it culture? Was it their parents? And the one unifying thing he says, 392 of the 400, is they all had periods in their life what he called the cauldron of character. They went through chapters that were so heartbreaking and so hard, every one of them, and they chose to go through it rather than around it, and that's, he said, what formed their character. Doesn't matter if they were in politics, doesn't matter if they were in science, doesn't matter if they were kings, doesn't matter if they were in the marketplace. They had to go through these pain-breaking chapters of their life, and when they went through that, the difference between them and others is how they responded to it. Peter says, why are you surprised at these trials so fiery that come upon you to purify your faith more precious than gold. Why are you surprised? Paul said, I consider that this slight momentary affliction, and Paul, when he talks about affliction, he was beaten three times with rods. They beat you so that you'd break bones in the inner organs. He was whipped five times, 39 times. He was adrift a, a day and a night. He was hated by everybody. There was a price tag on his head. His churches couldn't stand him. He lost his entire family because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal great expression, weight of glory. Hupataxios, this weight of glory that when God glorifies us, God himself is the one who have glory, but all of his sons and daughters will share in it. And when God puts glory on us, that level of glory, it would collapse us if we didn't have perfect bodies and his strength at that time. When Mary comes to Bethlehem, when Mary comes by God aligning things up and we forget in the fullness of time Christ came into the world, and this pregnant Jewish girl, as she comes here, never having a child, and as a time came for her to deliver, and Joseph, if he was sadiq as he was, he would have left the room so that he would not be impure by the blood. That means this girl alone, and it was probably a cave there in Bethlehem, where you see them where the flocks are kept, what we call a manger, where they kept them. And that means Mary would go in with the anesthesia of that day, take a rawhide strap and bite on it and stoop down and put her hand against the wall and in utter pain push out yelling and collapse on her back and see her breath against the cave ceiling and there in the mud and the blood of a manger is the Son of God. That's how God chooses to come into the world. And one moment he was in glory, the eternal logos, and the next moment he's a child in this muddy smell of urine and manure of the stable. And one minute the angels and the archangels worship the one who speaks the cosmos into existence. 
The next moment he is a poverty child with a mad king that's trying to kill him. At one moment all things are before him and all, and he gives it up and he finds himself now to live this life of love and caring and trying to give to others. And that's how God calls you and I to follow in those steps. When we get to this place where we finally understand in Bethlehem that when we lay aside our agenda, when Brewer, when I do this, my got an agenda for this church, things I want to do, but this is Christ church. And I have desires for my family and my family members and my future, and that's good to have those. But when I finally say, Lord, you take this, you do what you want when you want, then there is born inside of us the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the fruit of the Spirit that the world will never get. Our first church, I remember a young girl who taught what it is to have this eternal weight, this eternal hope of glory. Steve had a little girl and she contracted leukemia. And 25 years ago they had good therapy, nothing compared to what they have today. And she was dying. And she asked Steve, she said, Dad, where am I going? And he said, oh honey, you're going to be with Jesus. And she said, where is that? And he said, I'll show you. And he took her outside and on a advent, a cold Colorado night when the stars were so clear, he looked up and he said, honey, heaven is on the other side. And she said, daddy, if heaven is that beautiful on the wrong side, I can't wait. And she got there. If heaven is this glorious on this side, what is the other side? And this is not just by and by, heaven in the sky, I wish I may, I wish I might, I wish upon this star tonight. This is the hardcore facts of the invasion of God into this world. God coming to say, I want unconditional surrender, and I love you so much. I love you so much. I will not only give my son this place, I will have him go to the cross and pay for what you and I owe to the justice of a holy God. Let me ask you, how thirsty are you right now? You're trugging, you're getting used to the gutter water of this world, even if it's served in a nice glass with an umbrella in it. You know, it's easy to get hooked on that. It's good to say, Lord, I want some of the real stuff. I want some of the fresh holy water to just hose me out like a radiator, the Holy Spirit, that artesian well that bubbles up inside. How hungry are you? You've been dining on trying to get your family's approval or the crowd's approval, trying to get that money that is out there, all good things in themselves, but have you really learned to dine on that child in the manger, the living bread, Christ himself. And as Mary said, my soul magnificat magnifies the Lord, for he has raised me up. God wants to raise all of us if we let him. Let's pray, shall we?
Right now, with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, there might be somebody in this room that's been aware of another voice besides mine that's been tugging at your heart. You might be watching online and you sense that the Lord really has been talking to you. And maybe you know you just are so thirsty and you're so hungry and you don't know what to do, but you know it's the Lord. You don't have to know the story or understand everything, but in an act of faith, if you simply say, Christ Jesus, I believe that you came into this world for me. I believe that you're alive, and Lord, I take all I know of me. I surrender it to you. Lord, come, invade my heart, take my life right now, and you'll begin a relationship that will begin right now and last to when the Milky Way is an old tale. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for coming. Thank you that you are coming back next time, not as a child, but the King of King and Lord of Lords. Thank you, Lord, we invite you to come now and be the Lord of our life, that we may tell a hurting, broken world about you. And now, Lord, as we give to you our tithes and our offerings, we thank you for the generosity of this church. Lord, I pray that as we give food for money for people for food and for clothes and for medicine, as we tell others the good news, may Jesus be the one that's pleased because we trusted him more than the shekels he loaned to us. Bless the gift and the giver alike. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.